Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CX Cast. Sam Stern, joined as always by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have our colleague TJ Kitt back for more with us. Hi, TJ. Hello, Sam. This week, we wanted to talk to you about your upcoming speech at our upcoming event, Customer Experience NYC, uh, as the name implies, in New York City. Uh, June 19th and 20th are the official dates of that event. We'd love to have you with us there, listeners. Many of you are probably already booked and coming. We'll see you there. And TJ, you are going to be speaking at the event and your topic caught our interest. And so we wanted to share that topic as a preview with our listeners. Maybe the best place to start is who is Charles Duhigg and why are we talking about him instead of about you and what you're talking about at the forum in New York? Charles Duhigg is a reporter for the New York Times who had a habit like most of us do, one that he was curious as to why it existed. Like, So he would go get cookies at a certain time every day and was trying to figure out what the mechanics were behind that desire to, to get cookies. And what he wrote as a consequence was a roll-up, really, of a lot of the research that people had been doing into habits. And what he found was that really habits break down into three components. There's a cue or a trigger, so something that sparks the idea in your head that I should go do this thing. And there's a routine, that's the actual execution of the habit. But most importantly, at the end of that routine is this concept of a reward. You know, I, as a kid, used to bite my fingernails. Now, the act of biting your fingernails is kind of the thing that people would have focused on if they were trying to get you to stop biting your fingernails. But what Duhigg points out is that really, if you want to change habits, if you want to understand habits, you have to understand what starts someone down that path, what triggers them, and then what the actual benefit of it is to the individual. So for me, when I was biting my fingernails, it was more of a nervous habit. The reward, if you kind of think about it in that way, was it was something that was calming. So if you wanted to change that habit, it wasn't so much, let us create some structural disincentive for you to actually bite your nails. It was to change the reward for biting your nails. So you started smoking or (laughs) as a adult finger biter, I I can attest that it is is hard to change habits, right? Especially if we do not understand the mechanisms by which they operate and by which you change them. So that makes sense. You're a finger biter as a kid, not anymore. What did you do? How did you change that habit? If you know me, then you know that I'm a particularly willful person. (laughs) (laughs) And you're a creature of habits too, by the way. I am a creature of habit. I am willful and I do respond well to strong disincentives. As a kid, I was someone who got strep throat a lot. My doctor told me, you know, if you keep biting your fingernails, you're going to keep introducing bacteria. And at some point in time, mm-hmm. we're going to have to remove your tonsils. The reason why I zeroed in on Duhigg's work was because there's this real question about how we should think about the value of customer experience and how customer experience supports the growth of your business over time. What you have to recognize is that in our data, what we have seen is that there is a really kind of this point of diminishing return where you kind of max out on your ability to grow your business strictly on the strength of a good customer experience. But there still are positive benefits of that customer experience being good. So what could they potentially be in terms of helping your business continue to grow even if you aren't able to get a specific customer segment buying with you because of the positive nature of that experience. What I kind of zeroed in on was this idea that really what a good customer experience does is two things. One, as your business is growing, it helps draw people in and it acclimates them to a specific way in which an experience should be delivered. And because they grow accustomed to that particular type of delivery, it becomes habit forming. Mm -hmm. So I am used to this being this way. Therefore, Mm -hmm. I always expect it to be this way. Therefore, I always go to you 
you guys because I found that you are the people who deliver in this fashion. Now, that's really going to resonate with a specific customer base. So if we use an example that we're going to use in the presentation, JetBlue, this is a company that's decidedly in growth mode. They're adding more routes, they're adding more planes, they're adding more customers, but they're really focused on a specific kind of customer. When you read their annual report and it talks about the kind of customer they're targeting, they say their sweet spot really is that customer who's a step above a leisure customer, but below that hardened road warrior. So someone Mm. who has that in-between space who has Mm -hmm. been underserved by traditional airlines. So that's interesting formulation. The road warrior perhaps can be treated well by any airline because of status. Exactly. But someone a step below that won't ever be treated well by the legacy carriers. Because you'll never fly enough really to kind of hit those marks where you get... But maybe isn't completely price sensitive like a leisure traveler. Exactly. That's a great understanding of a market niche that didn't exist before. Right. And by identifying that market niche and saying, hey, look, we have not seen someone really serve them. Maybe we can get them to a place where they have habitually come to us. Like it's Mm -hmm. just when I have to fly, I think first of JetBlue and then if JetBlue doesn't fly there, I look at alternatives, but I always look first at JetBlue. And the way that they do that is by building what we're referring to as this customer experience platform. So this is really kind of a bunch of concepts that we've been talking to you about before, but we want to apply them in very specific ways when we're talking about creating habits or at least beginning to acclimate people to a specific experience. So first, it's this notion that you're going to have a CX vision that is tied closely to a brand promise as well as a business strategy. Now, why it's important important to formulate it that way is because when you're thinking about this as a business strategy and as a brand promise, you're divorcing it from the notion of just the product. That's the challenge with being a bookstore. You're locking in on one type of experience delivery. But if you elevate your your promise, your CX Mm -hmm. vision to something of core concepts, then you can follow customers Mm -hmm. as their habits change. That's more fluid. It's more fluid. Mm -hmm. So JetBlue's vision is having differentiated products and services that inspire humanity. So lop off the products and services part of it, focus on the inspire humanity part of it. Again, this is actually one of the things you should look out for when you're looking at these annual reports. Look at how they talk about their customers. A small note, JetBlue also capitalizes the C in customer every single time they refer to customer in their annual report. Hmm. So it's that real emphasis on the customer. And so when they think about inspiring humanity as kind of that base, then you can think about the end-to-end experience because you're not focused strictly on what happens when you get into the plane. That's the ground level. What is the vision and how is that a core organizing principle for the business that's not tied to a specific product or a way of delivering the experience? The second element that you want to look at is how well you understand your customer base so that you can react to changes in that customer base, in those customers' habits in a smart way. So again, if you come back to JetBlue, where does JetBlue spend a lot of their time, a lot of their money, a lot of their emphasis on customer feedback, on net promoter? When they look at their data, how do you get to a Mint program? By looking at your data, Mm -hmm. understanding that this customer segment that you're trying to land in actually wants a higher level service on long haul flights. So you provide that to them and that's how you get meant. But you do so in a way that does not degrade that underlying core mission, which is inspiring humanity. So what do they do? 
they only introduce mint on their newest planes, the A321s. Those are larger cabins. And so even as I take away some of your leg room, I've introduced things like touchscreen televisions. I've got this galley with all this The whole experience seems nicer, so I don't think I'm missing out on anything. Exactly. And if you find yourself in one of those bulkhead seats, Mm -hmm. you know, so right in that first row of coach, there's so much leg room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can basically lay down in your chair. Do you see examples of companies following, you know, that higher order brand promise? A place where they say, well, we need to actually kind of proactively guide habit changes. Look at like a Netflix, for example. There had been examples of streaming content before, like YouTube. But what Netflix did was it, it provided people this opportunity to begin binge watching programs. So now it's not just that I go and watch dozens of cat videos in a row. Now I'm watching the entire run of Breaking Bad. hours of TV in one. Right. So now I'm changing expectations. I'm retraining people to think about how shows should be Mm -hmm. delivered. And so that blows up the paradigm that people had had before. And now here's a new habit because there is a new cue. It drops a day all at once. And here's a new reward. I get to watch that entire program in this one sitting. So you've blown up essentially the entire way in which television contents delivered Mm -hmm. and paid for, which is kind of the other important part, because now you have advertisers who have depended upon this idea that you are going to be in front of your television at 9 p.m. primetime watching this sitcom. No, I don't want to sit there at 9 p.m. I don't want to build my day around when a TV program is going to be on. I want that TV program to now fit into my day. Right. Whenever I decide to put it into my day. Mm-hmm. So that's the shift. And that's the danger of you know, kind of being too closely wedded to one particular idea of how an experience should be delivered because I've built my entire business around this particular experience delivery. You know, we beat up on borders a lot, but think about borders. Like a lot of the stuff that's been written about borders has been about misses in terms of the business model. But if you roll that back up into what do they miss about the changing customer experience, they really invested in this idea that we're going to be a great place for people who like to go to bookstores. People like me, I like to go to bookstores. So having smart people who are smart about books is a great thing for somebody who wants to go to bookstores and likes that experience. Having a vast inventory available in the bookstore is a great thing for someone who likes and habitually goes to bookstores. But if you just like books, if you just like to read books, then that's not a habit that I want to keep. Yeah. Going to the bookstore to feed my actual habit, which is reading a lot, is not sufficient. The opportunity that Borders missed was when the model changed to e-commerce, they couldn't envision a world in which people didn't habitually go to bookstores. So they turned over their e-commerce to Amazon. Mm. They were selling their books through Amazon. That brand promise, right. as you said in the beginning, was right. tied to a physical bookstore. Exactly. So it wasn't able to change. It kind of reminds me of Yahoo, you know, let Google do its search, right? right? And it's like, hey, search is just this little slice of what this larger thing that we are, that we do. So no big deal. how far we've come. (laughs) And I also think, you know, the analogy, it seems like, okay, people come to bookstores because they want all the books in one place they can find a book. People turn on the TV because they want all the content on and they're going to look. And it's like, no, you, that (laughs) model actually taking to logical extreme would push them to the web where literally all the books ever could be. Exactly. Puts them to on-demand content where literally Mm -hmm. all the content could be. So it's it's like, and I think you were sort of getting at this, but like you had this good idea that someone took even further out to its logical extreme right. and just blew up your model. Right. And this actually gets to kind of the final point that I was going to make about that experience platform, which is this notion of a malleable customer experience ecosystem. So can your ecosystem actually embrace the changes that you want to make to the experience to support new customer habits? So if we, again, kind of turn back to cable companies, what do we always talk about when we talk about the problems in the cable model? It's that the cable company 
agencies have a hard time creating skinny bundles because the content providers pay them a lot of money to create these tiers that include not just the popular channels that they have, but Mm -hmm. all of the other channels. So I can't break from that model easily because I still have to figure out a way of delivering to you 200 channels. Like I can see that you just want to watch this show whenever you want to watch it. So I'm going to deliver to you video on demand, but I still need to cover those content providers. And so I still need to figure out a way of getting the channel that you want into a tier with all the channels that you don't want, and then deliver all of that to you in a bundle at a price point that will cover my cost in delivering that service to you. And so there's a lot of things wrapped up in that that make it very difficult for a cable company to fully embrace these new business models or these new habits that are threatening their business model currently. I guess the steps that you can take when you do this is to sort of strip down your whole brand promise and experience away from any sort of product or service delivery model to what is the reward that the customer is seeking to get from that interaction. And then when you do that, that allows you to be more malleable. It also paves the way for innovation. Exactly. So just think about what Amazon writes in their annual report. They say, we focus, and they use the word focus, on convenience, price, and inventory. If you focus on that, then you aren't a website, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So it doesn't matter where I deliver to you the inventory. Yeah, inventory can be anywhere. Or the convenience, right? The convenience part actually makes it clear that I will be a voice interface. I will Mm, be a mobile app. I will be on their website. I will be on your TV. I will be anywhere you want me to be because I'm making it convenient for you. I will be back to a physical store because exactly. in cities, people want that or it's convenient to their office or exactly. you know they can get something instantly or with food, which they've struggled right. with until buying Whole Foods. People right. are like, uh-uh, I got to see the meat. I got to see the right. produce before I buy it. You've seen others do it, right? Warby Parker, Bonobos have open stores or at least you know showrooms. But the idea of not being, to your point, wedded to, well, we are a website. That's it. It's right. like, no, that, you did that because it was more convenient or maybe it had right. a lower cost structure, but you right. did it for the benefit of customers. So if the store suddenly, the physical store suddenly makes sense again, then you should be open yeah. to that. Right. But you want the experience to support the habits mm-hmm. that your customers want to have. Yeah. And that's what I think the that's Amazon great. Produce one is actually really interesting too, because that was a habit that you couldn't change. Right? People don't want to buy their produce yeah. right. online. Some people right. just do not want to do that habit. You can try to force it with technology, but that's not what they want to do. So come back around right. and give them a physical location. No, I think that's a great, you're right, it, it, that there are plenty of habits that are changeable that, mm-hmm. you know, I will adjust because something better comes along or just is more convenient in a different way. But there are so many others where it's like, uh, no, I like this habit the way it is. There's a very good reason why I'm doing this. Right. So I'm not changing. Well, that's great. Well, TJ, thank you for joining us. Listeners, you will get to hear more about this if you join us in New York on June 19th and 20th, where TJ will be talking about habits and their importance to customer experience on stage at our customer experience forum. Listeners, if you have feedback or questions about this week's episode, please email us at cxcast, one word, at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perceptions is your customer experience reality.